kids ministry gets cheered on like that's this is amazing (laughs) wow well the rest of you can turn with me to Romans chapter 8 Romans chapter 8 today we uh, we're taking a step out of Hebrews uh, because really Hebrews chapter 3 brought up a significant issue and uh, so Nick volunteered me to uh, to talk about this issue uh, and that issue is the issue of, uh, of assurance. And so today I've entitled our message, even Blessed Assurance, as you know, the, uh, after the hymn, Blessed Assurance, written in 1873, just a recent uh, song, and uh, a new song. No, just kidding. No one got that. I didn't see anybody. Okay, fine. This is the crowd we got today. All right. Um, so today we're going to be talking a little bit about what is the Christian's assurance, what is it that is our hope? What is the foundation of our confidence uh, before God and, be, and as we serve and live in this world? What, what is our confidence? So Romans chapter 8 is going to be our text. Actually, John 10 is what's in your bulletin and probably what's on the screen. Uh, between the bulletin and me finishing my message, I changed my mind. All right? So we're going to get to John 10, uh, but we're going to get there through Romans 8. All right? So look at verse 31. I'm going to read to you the conclusion that Paul gives, but we're going to walk through all of Romans 8, the whole chapter. Uh, we're, going to, we're, we're going to do something a little different. This isn't my typical way of, of teaching but, and preaching, but we're going to just walk through this passage. We're going to miss a lot of things because there's no way, there's like a million sermons in Romans chapter 8, but we're just going to walk through it in this big overview and give you this picture, I hope, anyway, give you this, this uh, just encouragement and confidence today, that your faith would be strengthened today by these incredible words of Paul. So the conclusion, you can stand with me, we stand as we read God's word, uh, and as we're going to read, we, because this is, this is God's words to us. So hear these words, my whole hope today, we're going to go through a lot of scripture, is just for you to hear God's words, that my words would sort of get overshadowed by far, by just listening to the word of God and being encouraged today, all right? So verse 31, this is the conclusion that we're going to get to as we walk through 8. This is what Paul says after this huge, huge, massive uh, doctrinal thing that he's going to say. He says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? For he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus, the one who died, and more than that was raised, who is at the right hand of God and indeed is interceding for us. What shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword? For as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. But no, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure of this, that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Father, and may you strengthen your people today. May these words penetrate our hearts 
in whatever state that we come here today, maybe discouraged, disillusioned, frustrated, angry, joyful, rejoicing, whatever it be, may be, God, may these words pierce into our hearts and our souls and give us confidence today before you. Confidence as we go out from this place. Confidence of your work in our lives and your continued work through us to this world that desperately needs a sure foundation. And so bless this time of teaching that you would be honored, that we would be encouraged to the glory of your name. We pray, amen. You may be seated. Well, this morning as we begin to, to think about this idea of Christian assurance, um, I think it's good for us to pause and say, why, what is it, first of all, that causes us to be uncertain? <laughs> like, what are the things in our lives that actually cause us to have fear and uncertainty that cause us to question and to doubt and to wrestle with our standing before God? Right? What are those things? So, so let me just go through a couple things to set this up, and then we will just dive right into Romans chapter 8, and I hope just be encouraged through it. My a friend of mine called me two months ago, I mean a, a really uh, close friend of mine, called me two months ago, uh, almost the first words out of his mouth is, Chris, uh, I don't even know if I'm a Christian. Now this is a friend who um, has been an elder at the church that I planted out of years ago. Uh, this is a friend who spent uh, him and several other men, we spent the early days of my Christian life and ministry together in the word and prayer uh, this is a man who, other than my wife, probably knows more about my life in the darkest days of my life than anyone else. Uh, he has been a huge source of comfort and encouragement and ministry to me. And he calls me up, and he's just the, the, the cracking of his voice, the despair and the distress in his voice. And he just says, Chris, I don't even know if I'm a Christian. And for the next hour, he just poured, just poured his soul out to me as I'm just listening to him share about all of these things that are going on in his life and just the sense of despair. And it was just, it was heart-wrenching just to sit there and listen to my brother wrestle with his confidence before God. And he gets done after probably an hour or so of just pouring his soul out. And he says to me, so what, what do you think? What do I do? And literally, I had no words except the first thing that came to my mind was Hebrews 12, verse 2. And I just said to him, look to Jesus, the author and the perfecter of your faith, who for the joy set before him he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the Father. Look to Jesus. You see, my friend, for an hour, in everything that he described to me, he had taken his eyes off of Jesus because everything he described to me was actually accurate. He accurately, but he had taken an introspective look into his own soul, into his own life, and he's telling me about, Chris, you remember those sins that we wrestled with way back then? I still struggle sometimes with those things, and I'm still wrestling with this, and he's telling me about all of his weaknesses, all of his difficulties, all, he's looking right here, right? And, and I think some of us are like that. We're too introspective, 
As the old preacher has once said, for every look that you take at yourself, and you should examine your own heart, right? Scriptures tell us that. Paul said, examine yourself to see whether or not you're in the faith. There's nothing wrong with with looking at ourselves, examining ourselves, but the old-time preacher said, for every one look that you take here, take ten looks at Jesus, right? My friend had lost his confidence because his eyes had been taken off of Jesus and been placed on himself. And for any one of us who would do such a thing, and I think some of us are so introspective, so much looking at our own lives, that we lose our confidence because if it is based on us and our abilities and our weaknesses and all of our, all of our inabilities, then we will have no assurance whatsoever. As John 8 says, I shared with my friend, that if the Son has set you free, you are free indeed. Be free. Look to Jesus, who is the author and the finisher or the perfecter of your faith. There are many other, uh, what, what I think one pastor called it, false assurances that we can have. Many other things that I think we can, if we can dangerously, and these things aren't bad things oftentimes, but we can dangerously begin to take even a good thing in our life and put our hope and our confidence in it, when in the end, if that's the case, we will find ourselves having no assurance at all, even in good things. For instance, your religious heritage. You were born into a good Christian home. There's no confidence. That's an awesome gift of God to you, but the Bible gives no assurance that because you have good godly parents that somehow you are going to be a good godly person. No assurance whatsoever. That is not our hope. Church involvement can be sometimes something we place our confidence in, that we can find. You're involved in church. You're doing all the things. You're, you're leading worship. You're teaching Sunday school, cleaning the church, caring for people, taking care of the poor, doing all kinds of things. Church involvement if, is, is awesome, but if you put your assurance in it and your confidence becomes in that, it will lead you to a place of no assurance whatsoever because the Bible says, in fact, that you can have all kinds of involvement in church, and we'll see later on. Uh, and not have any confidence in Christ. Mo- a moral lifestyle. Some of us are committed to making sure we dot the T's and, and, or dot the I's and cross the T's and make sure we live a moral lifestyle. And there's nothing wrong with that. Obviously, we are called to be a people who have a Christian ethic, right? But, but if you begin to put your confidence in the fact that you live rightly, there will be no confidence at all. Intellectual knowledge. Uh, you could know a lot. You could know, in fact, all, uh, you know, study theology and pore over books and be incredibly smart and in understanding the doctrines of our faith. And you could, you could have incredible knowledge. But the Apostle Paul says if you begin to put your hope in that kind of stuff, you, your knowledge will puff you up. And it will be no confidence at all. In fact, I know. Uh, I could think of a couple of names that come to my mind right now, men that I've known over my life who've read more books than I will ever read in my lifetime, who, who know and can argue with you about theological points to, 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 the, to the end. Like, they're incredibly intelligent, but I see, have never seen any evidence of the fruit of the Spirit in their life ever at all. Intellectual knowledge is not anything to put our assurance in. Generosity, you'd be a really generous person I had a man in my church years ago in South Dakota who was insanely generous and yet even to this day would say he's not a Christian, but he gave more money to our church than probably anybody in our church. He would hand out $100 bills 
You know, here, give this to somebody. Like, that's the kind of guy he was, and you think, man, wow, what an amazing guy. No fruit of the Spirit, no confidence whatsoever. Here's one that's crazy. Past decisions. Oftentimes, we put our confidence in something that happened back there. We, we can easily try to find our assurance. If somebody were to ask you, how do you know? How do you know where you stand with God? And you say, well, well back there somewhere, I did this or that. I prayed a prayer. I walked an aisle. I did this thing. And therefore, I have absolute assurance. But, but do you realize, as I was studying this message today, and we get into Romans 8, that whenever the Bible talks about faith, like, and, and talk, describes it as your faith, it talks about it almost exclusively as a present tense participle. You know what that means? When we talk about our faith, we talk about our faith right now. It doesn't exclude what God has done in the past that has led you to this. But, but when, when the Bible's saying, talking about your faith, it's talking about today. Where are you at? Right? Where's your confidence at today? And oftentimes we can have all kinds of confidence in some past thing. And in fact, uh, we will see that here in just a moment. I won't go into it much more. So the question is, what is the source of our Christian assurance? What is it? Why can we have absolute confidence and be encouraged today? Well, the Apostle Paul, in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, uh, as he's in prison, writing a letter to these Philippian Christians whom he sacrificially went and shared the gospel with them in so many ways, he he writes just a few words in, a few lines into this letter. He says this. He says, I am sure of this. Philippians 1 verse 6. I'm confident, some of your translations say, I am confident of this, that he, God, who began a good work in you, will, notice the emphatic nature, will bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. So he's in prison for his faith, He's writing to them to encourage them, and he says, the thing I am confident in, notice where his confidence rests. He's not saying, I'm confident in my faithful service to you. I'm confident in my sacrificial service. I mean, after all, he's in prison, and when he was in Philippi, things didn't go so well for him. He didn't say, I'm confident in my moral life that I lived in front of you. No, he says, I am confident in fact, that this work of salvation that God began in you, God will actually complete it in you on the day of Christ Jesus. That's his confidence. It's first to last God. And so, we turn to Romans 8 then to say, what is, what is this incredible confidence that you and I can have? And Paul is just pours out this reason why we should be absolutely encouraged and assured in our faith. In chapter 7, at the end of chapter 7 in Romans, he, I love this, he, uh, he's, he's wrestling with the, the law and the sinful nature and this, this tear. He says, I do the things I don't want to do and the things I want to do I don't do. And he's just this incredible uh, war that goes on between the, the, the spirit of life and the spirit of death. And, and at the end of it, he rightly concludes, just like my friend who called me, he rightly concludes, I love the end of chapter 7, he says, wretched man that I am. That's an accurate statement. <laughs> That's a statement that every one of us should declare you know, with absolute certainty. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? But then he says, but thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. 
Thanks be to God. And so then he turns in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, with this incredible news. He says, there is, therefore, because of what God has done in Christ, there is, therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set me free from the law of sin and death. Did you hear that? Just receive those words. I don't even have to give explanation to that, right? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, right? Isn't that incredible? No more for those of us who are in Christ. No more, no judgment. No more, never will you be condemned for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because the spirit of life has set you free from the spirit of sin and death. It is incredible news that he's giving. And then he goes on, however, to say why this matters. Why is it that we graciously and sovereignly need God to rescue us? Why is it that we needed God to step in in the first place? What is it in verse, in verse 1 that is so serious that God has to overcome? And look at what he says in verses 7 and 8. In fact, why is it that our faith is more than simply an intellectual assent to some propositional truths about God. There's more to salvation than me simply saying, I believe these things. You need this, salvation is more than that. It's not less than, but it's more than that. Why is that the case? Why is it more than simply a prayer that I pray? Instead, it's the work of God from start to finish. Why is that necessary? Look at verses 7 and 8. It's because of the nature of our sinful state. Our sinful predicament is serious. He says, he says, for the mind that is set on the flesh, which is a way of referring to our sinful selves, our sinful nature, the mind that is set on the flesh, flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law, and indeed it cannot that's a pretty serious thing, right? This is what Paul meant in Ephesians 2 when he said that we are lost without hope in a world without God. We cannot rescue ourselves from this sinful state. We need an intervention, a serious intervention, right? Does that make sense? Like, it is, it is serious. He says you can, the person, the, the, the person who's of the flesh cannot please God, we are stuck. We are in bondage. This is what Paul says when he says we are slaves to our sin. We are in bondage. We cannot rescue ourselves. We need God to come and do a work in us that we can't do ourselves. And that is exactly what God did in sending his son. That is exactly what he did. He came to save sinners who were in bondage. And in fact, because of the work of God, because of what God has done, we are no longer slaves to sin. We are no longer controlled by our human sinful nature. Instead, we can live a life according to the Spirit. We can live free indeed. Why? Listen to what he says. But you, however, verse 9, you, however, he's talking to these Christians, and he's saying, you, however, are not in the flesh, but you are in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, hear this, if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, that is, it's still going to die, right? 
the spirit of life, or the spirit is life because of righteousness. Whose righteousness? Not yours, not my friend who called me, but Jesus' righteousness, right? It is life because of righteousness. So if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the spirit who dwells in you. This is beautiful news, right? This is incredible news. Even our bodies, which will still die, will be raised to life by God's spirit. And then we're going to jump down for a minute. Verses 15 and 16, he says, we can see even a beautiful things. He says, for you did not, in verse 15, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, uncertainty, but you received, here's what happened to you. Here's what God has done in you when you became a Christian. You received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry, Abba, Father. <laughs> He's, God, in fact, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 10, talks about the fact that we were once not a people, but now we are a people of God, right? He's, he's saying, you were once an orphan, right? You once had no family, you had no belonging, you had no standing with God, right? Except for the curse, you had no standing whatsoever, but now, miracle of miracles, God, by the power of his spirit, has adopted you into his family and made you sons, which, by the way, is not a sexist thing, excluding women here, just so you know. Uh, I always have to say that. Because what he's saying is, is that man, woman, child, doesn't matter. He's saying every one of us have the standing of a firstborn son who's set to inherit everything that the father has, no matter who you are. In Christ, you are like an adopted you are like a firstborn son adopted into his family. And he says, of whom the Spirit cries, Abba, Father, which is this term of endearment in which we have this affection for God. God has put his Spirit in us, and he's awakened in us this affection and this love, this relationship with the Father. And then he doesn't stop there. He says, the Spirit himself then bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Did you know that? How do you know you're a child of God today? Because this God has put his spirit in you and it bears witness to your spirit that you are in fact a child of God. How do you, how, what is that witness? Well, I think we could, we could spend a lot of time on that. It's a whole message. But, but the fruit of the spirit is one thing, right? He produces fruit. He changes our hearts. He gives us new life. He gives us new perspective, right? He, he bears witness to these things uh, through all, all of these means, the Spirit is like a foretaste, in fact, of the glory to come. And here's another beautiful truth in verse 23. Um, one of my favorite things about this passage. He says, and likewise, as if he's not said enough already, and I've skipped over a lot already. But in verse 23, he, or 26, he says, and likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what, we, what to pray for as we ought you ever been there? You ever been in a place, dark, difficult time, or just, just a normal time, where you don't know how to pray? 
You don't know what you ought to pray for. You're just stifled. You're just sitting in the presence of God and the words can't come out and you don't know what to do. You don't know how to pray. Listen to this beautiful truth that testifies to the work of God in your life. It says, and this, when, when we don't know what to pray for as we ought, it says, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. He searches, he who searches the hearts and minds and, and knows what is in the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Is that not amazing? When you don't know what to pray, when you're sitting there fumbling around this inarticulate little moment before God, the Spirit of God is interceding for you with His own words that are in direct parallel to the will of God. Like, is that not amazing? I find that comforting because I have many times where I don't know how to pray. Right? God's spirit in us is actually praying the very will of God for us, right? It's this beautiful thing. And then, as if that's not enough, he turns with an and in verse 28. And, by the way, we know, he says, that for those who love God, is that you this morning? Do you love God? Has God put his spirit in you that cries, Abba, Father, there's this, this genuine affection and love for God? I'm not talking about the, whether it's white hot this morning or really cold. I'm not talking about the levels and degrees. But no, is there, is there a love for God this morning? He says, listen to this. He says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. This beautiful, incredible truth that God takes every single solitary circumstance and moment of your life and he is all of the time working those circumstances, working those situations, whether they're good things or bad things, bad days and good days, dark and difficult stuff, lost some of the darkest nights of your soul, the most difficult things you go through. God is bending and twisting and working all of those things, every single circumstances. None of it is a waste. It's all for a purpose, even if you and I, and not even if we usually don't get it, but God, what we can be comforted with is that God is at work always for you. Always. You can't think about that. Always in everything to bend and to twist and to work it for your joy, ultimately, your eternal joy in him and his ultimate glory. Isn't that amazing? And why can Paul say these incredible truths with such rock-solid confidence? Why can he say this? I mean, these are, these are incredible, bold statements, right? He's saying all of this, um, not in a vacuum, because of verses 29 through 30. He's saying this because God is the author and the finisher or perfecter of our faith. He can say this with confidence because God is the one who began the good work of salvation in you and he will bring it to completion at the end. Paul can say this with confidence because of the very nature of which you are saved. The very means, the very way in which you are saved is this overwhelmingly beautiful truth and he gives four pillars of your salvation. Four pillars, listen to what he says. He says in verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he predestined, 
he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. This is the aim that God has. He is conforming us into the image of his son constantly, daily, degree by degree, step by step, moment by moment. He is making us more and more and more like his son. And it says he, he's, he's in, in order that we might be the firstborn, that he, yeah, he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And then he says in verse 20, 30, 29, 30, 30, and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justifies, he also glorified. Notice the glorification part hasn't even happened yet, right? Jesus has not come back, right? That hasn't happened, but Paul's talking about it in absolute certain terms on their behalf. As if it's already happened. Because God is going to see it through to the very end. Now I know, when I just mentioned the word predestined, Many of you, there might have been like anxiety wells up inside of us. Don't let that be the case. Don't let that be the case. I've had many, I can't even tell you how many times somebody comes to me and says, you're not one of those guys that believes in predestination, are you? And I'm always kind of like, aren't we all? Like, this is the authoritative word of God, right? I didn't write the rules. God has inspired this word It is infallible and authoritative. It is the word of God. He is the one who sets the terms of how you and I are saved, right? Do we want to argue with God about how he saves us? Is that what we want to do? You may wrestle with it, and I I know you will. I've wrestled with it for years. I was wrecked over these things for years, right? Yeah, praise God. Like These things should cause us to think and wrestle and stand in awe, but to say we don't believe it. That's to say we don't believe the word of God. That's to pick a fight with the king of kings. So I just want to caution you. Find out why it's beautiful and glorious, right? Because God doesn't do things that are not glorious, right? He saves us for his own glory and for your own joy, and so wrestle with it in that light. And and so you see the nature by which we are saved, that he's speaking with definitiveness. Those whom he's predestined, he will call. And those whom he calls, he will justify, meaning he will make you right. He will give you peace with God. And every person who has been justified will, in fact, be glorified. And every one of those words is at least a three-part sermon. Right? There's a lot to those words that we will not get to today. It'll be wholly unsatisfying. However, <laughs> this is not new. Jeremiah and Ezekiel, when Jeremiah and Ezekiel were looking forward in anticipation and hope to this new covenant that would be established, that would not be, Jeremiah says in 31, it would not be like the old covenant, which what? It failed, right? It, the old covenant failed in the sense that it brought death, right? The, the conscience of the believer could not be satisfied, and the people continued to, to fail, right? It couldn't uphold the law. And so in the new covenant, he says it's not like the old covenant. Listen to this, and he summarizes this in Jeremiah 32. The prophet Jeremiah is, is speaking of this, and he says, He says, I'm going to make them, this is God speaking, I will make them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. There's that 
There's Romans 8.28, right? I'm going to be constantly doing good to them, even in bad things, no matter what. I'm going to make a covenant with them. I will never stop doing good to my people. I will put the... Listen, God, listen, God is the subject of these texts, right? I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. That they may not, they will not turn from me. Isn't that crazy? So God is saying in advance, Jeremiah is prophesying, saying this is the nature of the new covenant in Christ. I am going to see to it that there is a people whose hearts are after me because I'm going to put my spirit in them. I'm going to work in them in such a way that they will not turn. No doubt Paul is drawing from this reality, but also he's drawing, I think, from the teachings of Jesus. Let me just rattle off some, some scriptures here. John 1, 12 and 13. We usually quote 1, 12. We forget 13. <laughs> 1, 12 says the Pharisees or the Jews are rejecting Christ. And he says, but to those who did receive me, to those who believed in his name, he, God, gave the right to become children of God. We usually stop right there. But verse 13 qualifies what that's like. How did that happen? He says, children who were born not of blood, meaning, go back to our list of false assurances, not of blood, meaning not because you're born into a good godly family. It's not heritage. It's not that. It's nor of the will of the flesh. Again, the flesh is set on what? Is hostile to God, will not submit to God, cannot do it, right? So it's not the will of flesh, and he says, and not even the will of man, which is almost the same thing, right? He's saying, in fact, in some of your translations, it says, not of human decision. So what is it? How is it that they came to believe in his name? It says, those who were born of God. Or in chapter 3 of John, he clarifies, those who are born of the Spirit, which is what we just saw in Romans chapter 8, right? God, by his spirit, has awakened us and made us alive, right? He's done this work in us. Listen to this, uh, John 5, 24. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears or whoever believes, uh, I gotta get back to my thing. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has, past tense, eternal life. He does not come into judgment. There's Romans chapter 8, verse 1. But has passed from death to life. The spirit of life has set me free from the law of sin and death. There's therefore now no condemnation. Paul's just, t- he's just regurgitating Jesus' words, right? Listen to John 6, 38. I love this. I love when scripture has this kind of clarity because it helps me because I'm not that bright sometimes. He says, for I've come down from heaven, this is Jesus speaking, not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me. I love when God speaks with this kind of clarity. Like, I just need it spelled out sometimes. Like, this is the will. So he came down to do the will of the Father. Let me tell you what that is. (laughs) Here it is. He says, this is the will of him, the Father, who sent me, that I, Jesus, should lose nothing of all that the Father has given to me, but raise it up on that last day. He who began the good work will be faithful to complete it. For this, he says it again, is the will of my Father, again, clearly, that everyone who looks to the Son, fix your eyes on Jesus, and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. He who began the good work will bring it to completion until the, on the day of Christ Jesus. And then he goes in verse 44 and says, how is he going to do all this? 
Going back to John 1.12, this is in line with what he said there. No one, Jesus says, can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And every person whom the Father draws to the Son who responds, I will raise him up on the last day. He who began the good work in me will bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. And if that's not enough for us to be encouraged, I hope you are, John 10. John 10, Jesus is talking about the sheep, and he's got these rascally Pharisees he's fighting with again. And, and he, says, he says, he tells them, you don't believe because you're not a part of my flock. Jesus has a flock. He's got a sheep pen. There's a bunch of sheep in the pen already in the, in the first part of John 10. In fact, in John 10, he says, but there are other sheep whom he knows already. There are other sheep out there. I must bring them in also. How does he bring them in also? Enter you and me. The testimony of the church, the, us bearing witness to the gospel. He says, I'm going to bring them in also. But listen to what he says. He says, my sheep, Jesus speaking, hear my voice, and, they, and I know them, and they will follow me. Listen, I give them eternal life. Listen to how emphatic this is. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand and then he says and by the way the father who is greater than all no one will snatch them out of his hand and then he says oh and by the way I and the father are one and then they picked up some stones and we're going to kill him <laughs> rightfully so and they're according to their law so let me ask you this morning why do we want to be stronger than God are you stronger than God, than the Trinitarian God that we just sang songs about and see unfold in these texts? Do you believe you can undo what God has so clearly and graciously and lovingly and sovereignly done in your life? Can you unadopt yourself? <laughs> can you become unadopted, unfree, unjustified, uncalled, unpredestined? Can you and I undo what God has done? Now, I know what you'll say. Let me just throw out an objection. You will say to me this morning, and rightfully so, what about those who seem to believe, but then come to reject and say, I do not believe? I don't know if you realize if you follow these things, but uh, there's a real fad going on right now. And it's a sad and d discouraging thing. But many prominent, in fact, uh, teachers, pastors, missionaries, ministry leaders, worship leaders, Many that you would know and you've listened to their sermons probably have come out and decided to deny the faith. They call it their deconversion stories. There's books are being written about it right now. They're running the circuit of the news because that's a great thing to put on the news. And, and they're talking about their deconversion that they once believed but now they don't believe. And so you could simply say, what, what is up with that? It's extremely sad. Some of these have, I've known what about them? Well, the Bible says what's up with them. And it's a sad thing. We should grieve this. But it, the Bible does actually speak of this. In 1 John 2, verse 19, John sees this happening in the church there. Now, I want to just say about this, the church at that point is a church that's, like, it's not like now we've got like 500 denominations going on or 30, 40, 50, 100 churches within a, an hour radius. You know, we're like, when people go out from amongst the church, they could go to a different one, right? The gospel preaching church. That's not the situation here. There's one church, maybe in different houses, 
but there's one church here. And Paul sa- or John says, there's those who went out from us, verse 19. But he says they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. Listen to how plain this is. But they went out. And by going out, so in other words, the going out here, by the way, is the denying of the faith. They're saying, no, it's false. This is their deconversion, they would call it, story. They went out, but he says, they went out that it might become plain that they are all, that they all are not of us. So in other words, John is describing a people who were in the church, probably prayed a prayer, have been baptized, went to the potlucks, ate the food, hang out in the church, did ministry most likely, and yet, and yet, left. And he says, yeah, they were in the group. They were among us, but ultimately they've proven that they were not of us. Is that that not what John is saying really clearly? Um, John chapter two, Jesus, this is a crazy thing. In John chapter two, in verses 23 through 25, Jesus has been preaching, they see these miracles, and Jesus says, there were those who believed in his name. That's pretty significant. They believed in his name, but it says on Jesus' part, he did not give himself to them because he knew what was in their heart. So they had made a profession. They, they were like, they were enamored by these miracles. And they're like, whoa, man, we, we believe in that guy. And Jesus says, no, you don't. <laughs> you don't actually believe He knows what's in their heart. You and I can't make that determination, but Jesus can. He knew what was in their heart. Or probably the most sobering text in all of Scripture is Matthew chapter 7. The most sobering text, I feel like sometimes, like that ought to cause every one of us to just just go back to Romans 8 and just trust in Jesus, right? Jesus says, on that day, they, they will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Do we not cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And Jesus is going to say, depart from me. Why? Because I don't know you. That's incredible. But it's also beautiful because what Jesus is saying is that he came to reconcile us to the Father and put his spirit in us that we would have a relationship with God. Our assurance is not based on prophesying, casting out demons, and doing mighty works, right? God has come here to establish a relationship with his people, to reconcile us to himself. This is our hope. But there are many who are going to put their confidence in something else, and it will end up in the end to be no assurance at all. And so let us put our confidence in Christ. I love John 15, and I'll close with this in a little story, but John 15, 16 um, says, Jesus said, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear much fruit. I love this passage. Um, I had a friend of mine call me one time, and we were, we were studying through the Gospel of John together, and he was kind of a newer believer. And, and this just like, <laughs> sometimes you read something, I still do this, I read something, I'm just like, what the heck is this? Like, what does this mean? And I'm just like, I'm like this new kid, like seeing something for the first time, like, I can't believe this is here. What does this mean? So he calls me up, he says, Chris, so do we choose or does God choose? Which is it? And I said, Yes. And he's, silence. No, but which one is it? I'm like, yes, it's both. (laughs) You choose because God chose. You do choose. You have a genuine choice, in fact. But God's the one who defines what a genuine choice is, right? God's the one who does that. 
We want to define the terms, but God defines the terms. It's this beautiful thing. So just, I, I think about this, like this incredible truth of Romans chapter eight, this beautiful truth is honestly what beckons my soul personally. This is something that I've wrestled with. It is beckons my soul constantly and continually to stand in awe and to worship God, who is so big and so good. I don't understand why God would choose me. Why? If I look at myself and you look at yourself, we come to the right conclusion. What a wretched man. I am. Why on earth would a holy God even look my way? It makes no sense to me whatsoever. But I walked into a church as a punk teenager, knowing full well that I did not belong there that day, that I was an outsider, but I liked the girl. And I heard the words of Romans 5, verse 8. But God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And that was the voice of Jesus, right? My sheep will hear my voice. I know them and they will follow me. Like I heard the voice of Jesus in those words. And I couldn't have expressed any of this stuff at that point. I had no idea what was happening in my life, but those words from God were his sovereign and gracious call on my life that day. And God, by no will of my own, God's spirit opened my eyes to see Christ that day in a way that I had never seen him at all. And I responded. You see, we are called to be responders. We don't do the work of God. We respond to the work of God. And God called me that day and changed my heart that day and I responded by faith and just like many of you have and millions of other people throughout history and our lives have never been the same since. I experienced, in fact, the very words of Romans 5, verse 1. Therefore, I didn't know how to articulate it, but I experienced it. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God, right? Do you have that peace today with God? Do you have that confidence? So, Romans chapter 8, verse 31. We're back to where we started. In light of these great and glorious truths, this is why Paul responds in verse 31 to 39 the way he does. This is why he just, it's almost as if you could feel him stand up in light of this incredible confidence and assurance that he's just pinned out on this piece of paper, and it's almost as if he just stands up and he shouts it, and he says, what are we going to say to these things? Like, what, what shall we say to this? What's our response, right? He says, and the response is this. I love this. If God is for us, who can be against us? What else are we going to say? If this is it, this is what God has done in our lives if this is the testimony that he's continually bearing witness to in my life and giving me confidence, if this, if this is the faith, if God be for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, which we're going to talk about in a moment in communion, but gave him up for us all, how will he not graciously give us all 
things. Isn't that beautiful? And then he says, so what, what sh- who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Who's left to accuse you? If God doesn't condemn you, is there someone greater than God speaking it to you right now? There's no one greater than God. If God doesn't condemn you, right? Who's going to condemn you? He says, it is God who justifies. He says, who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, was raised, who is at the right hand of God and indeed is making or is interceding for us. And then he says, so what shall separate us from the love of Christ? What is it? What can you come up with this morning that's gonna separate you from Christ's love? Shall tribulation, distress, all these things we've experienced, persecution, famine, nakedness, not having the things you need, danger, the sword? No, no, he says, no way. No, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who has loved us. And then he states at the end, for I am sure. Have this confidence today. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation. That pretty much covers everything, right? Nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. Nothing. There's your assurance, Christians. Put your heart. Look to Jesus. Look to him. He's the author and the perfecter, the finisher of your faith. He who began this good work of salvation in your life, he will bring it to completion on the day of Christ. Be assured, be encouraged, be thankful for what God has done through Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Thank you, God, for these incredible truths. There is no greater thing that we could find our hope and our confidence in today but what you have done for us sinful wretched people through your our lord and savior jesus christ by coming to this earth living a sinless life dying on the cross in our place for our sins and being raised to newness of life three days later that we might have by faith eternal life thank you god for this incredible gift God, let us fix our eyes on Jesus and be encouraged today. Let us not be those who have an unbelieving and evil heart, but God, may your spirit testify with our spirit that we are, in fact, children of God. We ask and pray this in your name. Amen.